Hi there, listeners. I'm Robin Anir, and you're listening to Nothing on TV, that podcast that ransacks Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Now, the episodes lately have been getting longer, and this time I was determined to find a straightforward and economical yarn to share with you. Did I succeed? We shall see. In the absence of TV, reports coming out of the law courts in the 19th century were a reliable source of drama, titillation, and sometimes comedy. Take this one from page 10 of the Melbourne Age on Saturday 27th of September 1884. It's headed up Supernaturalism in the police court, and it's on the long-winded side. Here it goes. A young man of respectable appearance named Harry Claude Winters, described as a gymnast, was charged by his mother-in-law, Mrs Elizabeth Shepherd, with stealing her furniture, which was valued at £40. The complainant, an elderly woman, said she was a widow and earned her living as a dressmaker. She used to live at 4 Pelham Street, Carlton. The prisoner and his wife lived there also, as he had no home of his own. On the 16th of July, Mrs Shepherd left the house to go into service, that is, to work as a live-in servant. So she left the house, the prisoner having charge of the furniture. A month later, she went back to the house to see if all was right, when she found the house empty and discovered that the furniture had been removed to an auction room in Burke Street and sold for just £4, 16 shillings and tuppence. In cross-examination by the accused, who was conducting his own defence, Mrs Shepherd admitted having told him the night before he was married that his wife was not really her daughter, but that the girl's mother was in England. Not sure how this was relevant to the case, but she would swear now that the girl was her daughter. The reason she told the prisoner this falsehood was that the girl, who was a notorious liar, had begged of her to say so. For the defence, the prisoner called Stuart Bell, a hairdresser, living in Berkeley Street, who remembered, while visiting the house, hearing Mrs Shepherd say that her son-in-law, the accused, need not be so hard on her as to turn her out, as she had given him all the furniture in lieu of the rent which he paid. The accused's brother, S. L. Winters, was then called, and he gave some extraordinary evidence. He announced himself as a professional sword swallower and contortionist and performer on the horizontal bar. He told the court, The complainant, Mrs. Shepherd, was a believer in ghosts and spirits and held conversations with the latter. On one occasion, whilst he and his brother, the prisoner, were in the house together, they heard a noise which so alarmed them that they concealed themselves in a cupboard, taking weapons of defence, his swallowing swords perhaps, in case of its being burglars, breaking into the place. While secreted in the cupboard, peeping through the cracks, they saw Mrs Shepherd and a little girl enter, who forthwith darkened the house and called out to the spirits in affectionate terms. The prisoner, being a bit of a ventriloquist, answered her from the cupboard in a ventriloquial voice, saying, Yes, dear when asked if a spirit was present. Then Mrs Shepherd adjured the spirits and said she morally and bitterly hated her son-in-law 
and mentioned in the course of her colloquy with the ghostly beings that she was in love with an old gent who reciprocated her affection and would marry her. The magistrate here interposed with a remark, What was said about the furniture? To whom did it belong? The witness then, in a long rambling account of the interview between Mrs Shepherd and the spirits, said the former had distinctly owned to having given up the furniture and wanted the ghost to aid her in putting a bullet through the prisoner. After listening with extraordinary patience to a good deal of this peculiar evidence, the bench dismissed the case and ordered the accused to be at liberty. Now, other reports of the same proceedings named the accused as Henry Winter, not Winters, a comedian rather than a gymnast. His performing name, in fact, was Harry C. Winter, and he sometimes shared a bill with his brother, whose name, in apparent contradiction of the S.L. Winters in the Age Report, was Frank. One of the papers said the brother had been lately attached to Chirini's Circus, but three months earlier we find Frank performing in Sydney as part of South and Thin's variety combination. Come and see Mr Frank Winter and his talking banjo. The following year, that's 1885, at the St Patrick's Day Grand Carnival in Melbourne, Harry C. Winter's troupe of novelty performers had Frank billed as the premier ventriloquist with his marvellous wooden talking figures, while Harry was the celebrated sword swallower, devouring four blades of solid steel. Frank also did a turn that same year at the Hall of Science, really just a vaudeville-type theatre, as an old man impersonator. There's versatility for you. Harry Winter, not long before he defended himself in court, had been part of a gymnastic troupe performing at the Victorian Colonial Exhibition. He and a fellow called Stanley Lawrence, billed as the greatest trapeze artist, will perform their dangerous feats in mid-air, high up, prior to their leaving the colony. That was in April 1884. In May, Harry Winter and Stanley Lawrence fought a glove contest as part of a grand exhibition of the art of self-defence, i.e. boxing, held at Parks Athletic Hall in Burke Street. This Stanley Lawrence was in the sword-swallowing business too. In January 1885, he was running his show from a tent in Chapel Street, Paran, and he had his sword stolen. He'd been just about to begin a performance, according to the Herald report, when the sword turned up missing. These blokes and other show folk seem to have picked up regular work at the charitable extravaganzas that were a feature of that era, the carnivals, bazaars and exhibitions that ran over days and weeks, mainly at Melbourne's Grand Exhibition Building. Here's a sample of what was on offer one night at the Women's Hospital Bazaar in May 1886. Professor Charles Sylvester will suspend his beautiful entranced lady on the point of two swords, then in mid-air, like Muhammad's coffin. Whatever that meant. There was Professor Wiggins, champion rope dancer, dancing on a tightrope, presumably. There was Mr. Donegan and his wonderful trained dogs, Mr. Nelson, clog dancer, and there was Harry C. Winter, sword swallower. The start of July that year, 1886, brought an unscheduled performance by Harry Winter at the city police court. He was there to provide an alibi for William Murray, a fellow member of Winter's Athletic Circus, which had been running in a tent in Williamstown. It seems as if William Murray was a strong man in the show. At the St. Patrick's Carnival with the Winter's brothers six months earlier, 
He'd been billed as an athlete and heavy weightlifter who juggles with 56-pound weights as though they were catch balls. And now he was charged with stealing 100 pounds from an elderly farm labourer named Henry Taylor. Taylor, it seems, had been in Melbourne on a spree, with a year's wages or more tied with string in his trouser pocket. The way he told it, he was lost somewhere in Burke Street and asked Murray for directions. Murray asked if he'd like a cup of coffee and led him into Heffernan's Lane off Little Burke Street. On the way, they were joined by Florrie Williams, a well-known prostitute, according to The Age, who was now in court as Murray's co-accused. Henry Taylor followed them, or in his telling was inveigled, into a cottage where Florrie Williams commenced pulling him about. She got him into an inner room where there was a kind of bed. She asked for five shillings and he took it out of his left-hand trousers pocket and gave it to her. She took further liberties with him, then left the room. By the time he realised his roll of banknotes was missing, Williams and Murray were both gone. This was the fine art of bilking, for which Little Burke Street and its tributaries were notorious. Williams would tell the police that it was Murray who'd put her up to the crime, telling her, the old man has plenty of money, touch him for it. The court heard evidence that Florrie Williams handed the money to Murray for safekeeping, then fled around the corner to a brothel kept by Italian Lizzie in Lonsdale Street, where she boasted of having had a bloke for a hundred pounds. Murray arrived soon after, giving a ten-pound note to the brothel keeper and nine one-pound notes to Williams, keeping the rest, presumably, for himself. Then we read this, this is from the report in the Weekly Times, that the defence called Henry Claude Winters, show proprietor, Richard Howard, canvas man, and Stanley Lawrence, acrobat, who swore Murray was at Williamstown and only came back to Melbourne by the 11.30 train, and after that he was at Brown's restaurant, Russell Street, with them. The crime had taken place at 10.30pm. Well, Williams and Murray were convicted. Florrie Williams got three months in prison. As for Murray, the judge noted that he seemed to have been living on the prostitution of his associate Williams, and a baser life for a young man could not be imagined. So saying, he sentenced Murray to two and a half years' hard labour. That was at the end of July 1886, and a few days later, in consequence of some very strong remarks passed by Mr Justice Higginbotham in the case of the daring robbery in Heffernan's Lane, police raided two dangerous brothels in Lonsdale Street, including the one run by Italian Lizzie, real name Elizabeth Brilly. The evidence presented in court, said the age, was to the effect that, in broad daylight, with the doors open so that people passing in the street and even children could see inside, scenes of a most disgusting and indescribable character were witnessed in these dens of infamy where prostitutes and thieves congregated daily and nightly. Among the ten people arrested in the raids was Frank Winter, an itinerant showman. He was charged with vagrancy and, in court, several witnesses gave evidence of his frequenting low Chinese brothels where he smoked opium with vicious women. He was sentenced to a month in prison. And just a few days after that, his brother Harry was back in court, this time charged with willful and corrupt perjury. Remember he supplied that alibi for William Murray? The jury in that case, by finding Murray guilty, had effectively accused Harry Winter of lying. Two other members of the circus troupe had also vouched for Murray, you'll remember. Why they weren't also charged with perjury, I don't know. 
But Harry Winter was, and although he defended himself with considerable skill, he was found guilty on two counts of swearing falsely. But the jury did accept that he'd supplied the false alibi, believing that Murray was innocent of the crime imputed to him, in view of which the judge sentenced Harry Winter to just 18 months prison, with the first two days in the third, sixth, ninth and twelfth months in solitary confinement. Now there's something I haven't told you that just might shed a different light on the crime and Winter's involvement in it. Remember in that rambling news item that began this episode how his mother-in-law, Elizabeth Shepherd, admitted that she told him his wife was not really her daughter, but that the girl who was a notorious liar had begged of her to say so? I took a look online and found the official records, this is at Justice Victoria, of Harry Winter's marriage and of the children born to that marriage. Now, on the birth registration for each child, their mother is named as Florence Nay Shepherd. But the marriage registration in 1884 shows her maiden name as Williamson. And I can't help wondering whether Florence Winter, Nay Williamson, and Florrie Williams, the diminutive woman of ill fame who had a bloke for a hundred pounds, whether they were one and the same person. In which case, it may have been Harry Winter who was living on the prostitution of his associate Williams and took a share in the proceeds of the daring robbery in Heffernan's Lane. In any case, after serving her time, Florrie Williams, hitherto well known, seems to have disappeared off the underworld scene. Twelve years later, the eldest son of Harry and Florence Winter, aged twelve, would be up before the North Melbourne court as a neglected child. He claimed that he had to sleep in empty houses because both his parents were dead. Surprise, surprise, his father showed up in court to testify that he could do nothing with the lad. He is beyond control, said Harry, and has got into bad company and is inclined to be dishonest. That boy must have been born while Harry was in jail for perjury. By the end of 1888, though, Harry C. Winter was out and back on the show circuit. In Bendigo, he shared a bill with a snake tamer and a sea monster. Really, it was a sea leopard. According to the Bendigo advertiser, Harry C. Winter, the sword swallower, performs what seem to be impossibilities, commencing by swallowing several solid blades of steel, sharp-edged and keen-pointed, some of them measuring quite three feet in length and concluding his curious performance by swallowing several bowie knives and an ordinary soldier's bayonet. He was sometimes billed as Professor Winter. Likewise, his brother Frank, also touring, was sometimes Colonel Frank Winter, the clever and renowned ventriloquist. Appearing at Sydney's Bondi Aquarium by special engagement in 1890 was Mr Harry C. Winter, the champion sword swallower of the world. That's the year he seems to have taken up a sideline in Punch and Judy shows. As Professor H. Winter's novelty and funny folks entertainment, he toured schools, agricultural shows and carnivals of all sorts in country towns and in the big smoke, with a troupe that included performing dogs and a ventriloquist, besides his own sword-eating, juggling and puppetry. In 1896, he performed on the dome stage of Melbourne's exhibition building as part of the 40th anniversary of the eight-hour day. We read in the age that H.C. Winters excited great interest with an exhibition of sword-swallowing, performing dogs, Punch and Judy, and other elevating influences. And that same year, 1896, Winters 
very cleverly educated dog performed across the strait in Tasmania, where the Committee of the Northwest Coast Exhibition declared themselves delighted to have been fortunate enough to secure his services. Mr Winter holds testimonials from clergymen, schoolmasters and others, testifying not only to the diverting nature of his entertainment, but also to its freedom from anything objectionable. His dog, named Tiny, was educated in the sense that she could, or so it was claimed, add, subtract and multiply. She could count money and people and tell time by a watch. At the Melbourne Hospital Bazaar at the Exhibition Building in 1900, Harry C. Winter's renowned drawing room entertainment included a mysterious juggling act, introducing the great Japanese box mystery by Miss Claire F. Winter. This must have been his daughter, born Florence Claudia. She'd have been 15. In the first 10 years of the 20th century, Harry Winter was still based in Melbourne, but he toured all over Victoria, South Australia, and as far north as Broken Hill. On at least one occasion, he was joined by Mrs. Winter, who foretold the future by means of the science of palmistry. From 1907, he called himself Captain Winter and was best known for his sagacious dogs or canine wonders, the most perfectly trained animals in Australia. One Adelaide critic observed, though, that while Captain Winter's performing dogs were very clever, they wore an unutterably sad expression. We're led to believe that animals are taught by kindness, but there was a glint in the captain's eye that betokened whip, and the little dogs themselves did not convey the idea that affection had figured largely in their tuition. A highlight of the act was the imitation by one of the dogs, Paddy, of a drunken man's return home, which invariably brings down the house. In 1911, Captain Winter and his educated dogs headed north. A reviewer for the newsletter, an Australian paper for Australian people, caught the act at the National Amphitheatre in Sydney and admired the pleasing routine of tricks. But he did wonder where the captain got his title from, not from the Salvation Army, he surmised. Next stop was Brisbane, and that's where Captain Winter would make his base for the next ten years or more, during which time his troop regularly toured a circuit that took them up the coast as far as Cairns as well as to New Zealand. More often than not, they'd be performing as the live warm-up act to a picture show. Now, the dog that did arithmetic and told time was named Bill Bailey and was billed as the wonderful dog with the human brain. As well, there was Paddy, the drunken dog. There was Tom, who skipped and danced. Whiskers, the comedian. Michael, the acrobat. And Jerry, the sensational jumper. By 1919, Captain Winter was billed as, or claimed himself to be, the best children's entertainer in the Commonwealth. His specialty now was Kitty's picture show matinees. Before they ran the reels of serials and cowboy pictures, he'd do his punch and duty show, he'd put his dogs through their paces and run skipping contests and needle threading competitions for crackerjack prizes. <laughs> you get the picture. Years later, in 1932, the Sydney Sun would run a story about Poverty Point. This, the writer explained, was the narrow strip of pavement in Park Street between Castlereagh and Pitt Streets. And any Monday morning, between the hours of 11 and 1, this asphalt isthmus is the highway for out-of-work actors in search of engagements. He goes on. 
For 30 years and more, these folks have walked the pavements booking their acts. Between three and 400 of them show up on parade. Impresarios stroll up and down booking acts for suburban pictures and vaudeville houses, country circuits, stadiums, shows, clubs and pantomimes. They clinch the bargain on the curb. Now then, don't you want a sword swallower? Captain Harry Winter is here waiting for you. Remember him? He trained and showed the first calculating hogs. Hogs? Surely not. But it says the first calculating hogs in Sydney. Now he trains dogs to count for his acts. 73 this year. Well, what of it? He can still swallow three swords and a bayonet simultaneously. And so there he was, the old showman, that mischievous man from the long-ago cupboard in Carlton. This seems to have been just about his last hurrah since I found him, or someone who sounds like him, a Henry Winters, he was often called Winters rather than Winter, dying at Granville in 1935. Now that ought to have been the episode. Pretty straightforward, just like I said, a colonial showman's career. If only I hadn't come across this in the Ballarat Star from April 1888. At the city court, an actor named Frank Winter, alias Frank Pilkington Bell, was charged with having deserted his wife, who lives in Melbourne. Remember Frank? He was the brother of our main man, Harry C. or Captain Winter. But Frank Pilkington Bell, what was that about? Wow. I had to follow the lead, and whoa. I figured this Pilkington Bell must have been a stage name or else an alias Frank had adopted for criminal deception. But Trove gave me nothing on that score. Google, however, turned up the name at a couple of genealogy forums, and this is where things got interesting. Someone, a distant family connection, was seeking information about the colonial doings of three brothers by the name of Bell. Frank Pilkington was one of them, and the others were Stuart Richard and Zanty Claude. Now, talk about bells, this rang one for me. You see, on the birth registrations of Harry C. and Florrie Winter's children, the father's name was shown not as Harry, but as Zanty Claude, Zanty Claude Winter. And their eldest boy, that one who ran away from home aged 12 and claimed to be an orphan, his name was Zanty too. The Bell brothers, it turns out, were three of the eight living children born in Surrey, England, to Richard, an architect, and his wife, Carolyn. They seem to have had a comfortable upbringing. The 1861 census shows the family attended by servants, a nursery maid, and a governess. But Richard, the father, died in 1874, and the following year, Stuart, aged 19, Frank, 17, and Zanti, aged just 13, shipped out for Australia. They came on a ship called the Tim Whiffler, landing at Maryborough, Queensland, in June 1875. Now, Queensland just then was a migration mecca, or at least was heavily promoted as such by labour agents in England. And newcomers were flooding into places like Maryborough, Bundaberg and Rockhampton. Of those disembarking the Tim Whiffler, the Maryborough Chronicle dismissed the girls as slatternly and unattractive, while the men seemed strong and unusually well-clad. So the three lads arrived in mid-1875 and then disappeared, 
or at least they've eluded my efforts to trace their whereabouts over the next six years or so. At the end of 1875, there was a letter addressed to Zanti C. Bell lying at the Maryborough Post Office unclaimed. Had they headed north to the copper mines or perhaps inland as pastoral workers? Did they have family in that part of the world, perhaps an uncle or a cousin? There was a chap named Bell, an iron and hardware merchant who was prominent in Maryborough and Rockhampton, but as far as I can tell, he was no relation of our Bell's. Now, given that Zanti and Frank, by the time they re-emerged, courtesy of Trove, in the 1880s, were gymnastic, ventriloquizing, sword swallowers and comedians, you've got to wonder whether perhaps they'd taken up with a circus soon after their arrival and headed mm, who knows where. And it's true, a circus did visit Maryborough soon after their arrival, but then, you know, a travelling circus in those times and those parts was never far away. As an old man, this was in 1932, Zanti, alias Captain Harry Winter, would tell that journalist from the Sydney Sun that he hailed from Reno, Nevada and had arrived in the colonies with Cooper and Bailey Circus in 1877. Mm, arrived back, perhaps. And in fact, in the sideshow that toured the colonies in connection with Cooper and Bailey Circus in 1877, we read that there are educated pigs, sensational rifle shooting, fire-eating, ventriloquism and excellent music hall singing and dancing. Much was made of one especial pig of the troop named Bismarck, our most sagacious and staid-looking animal of the Berkshire breed. He plays euchre, tells the time of day, answers questions, etc., in the cleverest manner. A Professor Wombold was credited with Bismarck's training, but doubtless there were a good few unnamed carnies attached to the sideshow, among whom there may have been a young Harry Winter. Harry had told something like the same story of his colonial origins when he showed up at that North Melbourne courthouse in 1898 to claim his truant son. On that occasion, according to the North Melbourne Courier, Winter Senior said he was an American and a circus performer. How convincing an American was he, I wonder, this chap from Rygate? The third of the Bell brothers, Stuart, seems to have followed a different course because the first mention I found of him after his landing at Maryborough in 1875 was at Ballarat six years later when Stuart Bell, a barber, had a valuable belt, maybe it was a strop, stolen. Stuart Bell, a barber. Does that sound familiar? Let's revisit that 1885 news report that began this episode. Remember, Harry Winter was conducting his own defence and called Stuart Bell, a hairdresser, who swore that he'd heard Harry's mother-in-law, Mrs Shepherd, say that she'd given him all the furniture in lieu of the rent which he paid. Well, he was Harry Winter's brother. And then there was that other brother, the professional sword swallower and contortionist and performer on the horizontal bar, who'd amused the court with that rambling tale of hiding in a cupboard and ventriloquizing spirit voices. The age gave his name as S.L. Winters. And I'd supposed it must have been Frank, they meant. But here's the thing. There was another Bell brother, the youngest, who must have followed the others across from England. And his name was Stanley Lawrence Bell, a.k.a. S.L. Winter. And hang on, Stanley Lawrence, remember the boxing match between Harry Winter and Stanley Lawrence and Mr. H. Winter and Lawrence, the greatest trapeze artists, and Stanley Lawrence, whose sword turned up missing 
and Stanley Lawrence the acrobat with Winter's Athletic Circus, who corroborated Harry Winter's perjurious alibi in the Heffernan's Lane robbery case. I wonder why they shed the name Bell. Was it that they were fugitives? Or was there another, better-known bunch of performing Bell brothers already out there on the circus or vaudeville circuit? Haven't been able to figure that out. But it seems to have been Frank who led the change. And he seems pretty much to have kept Winter for a stage name. He was married as Bell twice. I found this in the Geelong Advertiser from June 1881. It's the last known newspaper sighting of Zanti Bell by that name. Frank Winters and Zanti Bell were charged with obstructing the thoroughfare. They'd put up a stand in Little Mallop Street and Sergeant Swale, seeing the defendants with a crowd around them, gave a constable instructions to lock them up if they refused to move on. What kind of show were they putting on, I wonder, that made the people crowd around? Was it Zanti swallowing swords? Or was Frank wowing them with his old man impersonation? The following year, 1882, their mother, Caroline Bell, died at Collingwood. Her son, Stuart, living at the same address, was the informant on the death certificate. And perhaps, who knows, her other boys were living there too. It seems that Caroline had arrived in Melbourne from England six years earlier. That'd be 1876. And her death notice in the Argus noted that she was mother of Mr. Arthur H. Bell, late of the Opera House. Arthur was the eldest of her sons, 17 years older than Zanti. It turns out that he'd come to Melbourne back in 1870 as a member of Lister's Opera Company, which set itself up for years at the Opera House. Nothing grand, it was just another theatre in Burke Street. He was a singer himself, but only a middling talent if the reviews are anything to go by but he was married to the company's prima donna, Jeannie Winston, who was said to be gifted with great histrionic ability. In July 1876, that was right about the time his mother arrived in Melbourne, Arthur and Jeannie made their triumphant departure for the US to further their careers there. They'd base themselves in New York and tour all over the States, and around 1885, this, it's true, was on the dubious authority of the Melbourne Punch, Arthur fell in love with a chorus girl and Jeannie divorced him. He never did return to Australia, but was last heard of directing an opera in Quebec, Canada, not long before he died in 1898. And so that was Arthur Bell. Now, my guess is that following her husband's death in 1874, Carolyn Bell must have settled the family affairs in England and then set off for Melbourne, where her eldest son was living. Her younger daughter, Clarissa, came too and would later marry a country schoolmaster. And I'll bet that Stanley Lawrence, the youngest of the Bells, also came with her. He'd have been just 13 or so when they arrived. The opera singing Arthur, as we've seen, headed stateside soon after. The mystery to me is why the other three Bell brothers landed in Queensland a year earlier and where they picked up their party tricks. Arthur may well have had connections in the vaudeville scene, Opera and vaudeville, at least as practised in the colonies, weren't so very far apart. So perhaps he got the boys' work and they learned the ropes that way. In any case, their careers, taken separately and together, suggest a familial gift for performance and a kind of tomfoolery. And what about Zanti? What kind of name was that? 
there must have been some kind of Grecian influence came over the Bell family around 1860 because not only was the Zanti born 1861 and named apparently for a Greek island, but a year or so earlier, between Frank's birth and his, there'd been a baby named Constantine who died. In any case, Zanti was a name that must have stood out in the wrong way, evidently. Interesting that he didn't abandon it altogether. He married as Harry Winter and served jail time under that name, but he was always Zanti Winter in the context of paternity. Remember how in that report we started with, he was described as being a bit of a ventriloquist? It's as if Zanti Bell threw his voice and Harry Winter's lips moved. I don't know how long his and Florrie's marriage lasted. Their fifth child was born in 1902, and I can't say how it ended either. But I do know that by the time he died, he was married to a different, younger woman. Her death notice in the Sydney Morning Herald named her as Elsie Winters, relict of the late Claude Zanti-Bell. That was in 1948. Remember I mentioned that a Henry Winters had died at Granville? in 1935? Well, records show that dying that same year, and also at Granville, was Zanti Claude Bell. So much for the straightforward story I'd planned. And there's plenty more I could have told you, like about Frank's marital misfortunes. Briefly, he'd have been in mourning for his wife and baby son at the time he was arrested as an opium-smoking vagrant in that Lonsdale Street brothel. And then there was his second marriage, about which you can read in the show notes for this episode. There's such a temptation to follow every lead. Researching this story, I had the burning feeling that the key to the Bell Brothers' circus origins and their taking of the name Winter was always just a click away. But that's the beauty of doing a monthly podcast. It forces you to draw a line and move on. Historical research, it's like the proverbial piece of string, you know? How long is it? Well, it's as long as you make it. You just have to know when to stop. That's it from me for now. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and it's produced by Mrs Bradley, about whom nothing more need be said. Take a look at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv, for pictures and further reading related to this and past episodes. There's an email link there too, if you'd like to drop me a line. And that's it. Nothing on TV remains a social media dead zone. You can find and download past episodes at the show page or wherever you like to listen. At Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe so that new episodes will drop like magic, into your podcast feed. Also at the show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.